Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. What's going on, you guys? Welcome back to the Neighborhood Podcast. I'm one of the hosts of the podcast. My name is Kevin Valentin. And I'm the other host of the podcast. My name is Kyle Dabra. Kev, what's popping, my guy? What's good? <sighs> busy week as per usual. I feel like I say it every week, but again, like my mom and dad always told me, busy is better than bored when it comes to work. So just getting through it. Hell yeah, it keeps you focused. I'm glad that I had the the day off, so we got a nice, easy record in the afternoon instead of recording at 10 o'clock at night. So that's always nice. Uh, we got a couple of topics to go over today. Got a little bit of football to talk about, a little NBA. A little bit of baseball. Got a little bit of everything today, bro. So I'll let you take the floor from here. Yes, sir. So agenda-wise, like Kyle said, a little bit of everything. So we're going to first talk about the New York Knicks and the NBA and their hot streak led by Jalen Brunson and, of course, Julius Randle and how the Knicks are looking headed into the playoffs because obviously we know that there's only about five or six weeks left of the NBA regular season. And if the Knicks keep this up, they're only going to get better in terms of seeding. I think currently right now they're fifth in the Eastern Conference. So Kyle and I are going to give our thoughts on I mean, how the Knicks are just looking right now at the right time. So probably the best time for them to heat up at this point. Uh, then we're going to go into the MLB. Haven't touched on it in a while since the World Series. Uh, baseball is back. Spring training is in full swing. Haha, <laughs> pun intended. And we're going to get into the MLB's new, I guess, rule with this pitch clock and how dumb it is and how it's already ruining spring training, ruining the integrity of the game, and how the MLB is catering to the people that don't watch baseball on a regular basis anyway. So uh, Kyle and I are going to give our thoughts on how Manfred has screwed up baseball yet again, but uh, that will be fun for us. Then we'll dive into the NFL. So we finished our top needs for teams that were in the playoffs, and now we're going to go in draft order. So we're going to go in top three needs for today's segment. We're going to talk about the Chicago Bears and then the Houston Texans. We both know that both of those teams need a lot more than just added pieces. They may need a little bit of Jesus and some other things, but... Both of those teams are pretty bad, so we have a lot to go on from there. And then finally, we are going to talk about John Jones in the UFC world. So that is going to be Kyle's complete realm. That is his domain of expertise. And John Jones is set to fight for the first time in three years in the heavyweight. And for those of you that are unaware, he's probably one of the greatest UFC fighters of all time. So for him to move up to this class, have a fight, and technically no losses on his record, it's going to be a pretty interesting topic for Kyle to dive into. So I'm looking forward to what he has to say about that and the fight as well. So packed agenda for you guys today. A little bit of everything. So let's just kind of dive right into it. Kyle, swing the Knicks this way. Hell yeah, bro. This is your city. So I imagine it's kind of nice to talk about the city in a positive way. In a way, positive way, yeah. Especially with the, uh, the New York Knicks playing really well of late. Uh, like Kev said in the lead-up, the New York Knicks have been on a really good stretch the last couple of weeks. Currently, they're on a seven-game win streak right now. They just absolutely smashed the Brooklyn Nets, I believe, on Wednesday night. Beat them by like the score of like it was like 140 to 115. I don't have the 
exact 142 score. 142 to 118. That's an, that's an ass whooping nonetheless. And it really goes to show that the infusion of Jalen Brunson into the fold this year has really made a significant impact for the Knicks as a whole this year. Kev, t- tell me if I'm wrong. What do you think the city's expectation for the Knicks was this year? This is that has nothing to do with the that segment that we'll talk about, but just the impression of what Knicks fans thought that the season was going to be like. It makes me laugh because every season we talk about this, it's we didn't get a big free agent, we wasted money, we we signed this person, we drafted the wrong guy, and the the, the hype behind Jalen Brunson was non-existent. And I'm not saying that Jalen Brunson is a perennial All Star and MVP candidate or anything like that, but. They were like, oh, this is a waste of money. We got him because we got his father as a coach and Leon Rose is his godfather, whatever the whole situation is with that. And now look, Jalen Brunson is your leading scorer. Jalen Brunson was an all-star snub. Definitely should have been an all-star player, at least a reserve at that point. And he is single-handedly carrying the Knicks from a consistency standpoint of how he's been playing lately. So I think that the expectations were crap. I think they were expecting to be a lottery team yet again. Um, Nick fans will never admit it in front of your face, but I know that a lot of Nick fans in their minds were like, we're not going to be very good. We'll be competitive, but we're not going to make the playoffs. And now look, the Knicks are in the fifth seed. So Yeah, and just to kind of go over the Eastern Conference standings right now, just to go in direct order, one through five, you got the Bucks who are at the top. you got the Celtics at the two. The Sixers are at the three. Got the Cavs at the four, and then the Knicks round out that fifth spot uh, in the Eastern Conference. But I do have to say, they are only a game and a half back of the Cavs for that four spot. And with the way that they've been playing, they could be a threat to take that four seed uh, by the end of the year if the Cavs aren't too careful. But no, the Knicks have been on a great stretch. They have a very good chance to extend their win streak over the next couple games. So Kevin, I'm going to kick this one to you. With the Knicks being on a really good hot streak of late, how well do you think that they could take this into the rest of the season and then potentially into the playoffs? I mean, I like what the Knicks are doing, right? The Knicks have gone away from trying to get marquee players and kind of dwelling on it and complaining about Tom Thibodeau and complaining about the defensive aspect about it and giving the wrong players minutes. And they're focalizing in their young core and their young talent. Obviously, you got Jalen at the one. Julius Randle at the four. Mitchell Robinson's healthy at the five, finally. Then you go and you have R.J. Barrett who has been up and down this season in terms of efficiency between his inefficiency to shoot behind the three-point line, his field goal percentage. We know that he's a pretty good lockdown defender, but offensively his game is still developing. Um, they're giving time to, uh, I believe, Jericho Sims. They're giving time to Grimes. Derek Rose isn't really getting a lot of burn because they are committing to giving their younger players more experience. They traded for Josh Hart, got rid of Cam Reddish. I mean, the Knicks are making the right moves. And they're giving the right players the appropriate attention that's necessary. Julius Randle has some games here and again where he's putting up some bad shots and where he's a little overconfident. But again, in most of those cases, New York never had a true definitive point guard. Jalen Brunson has come into the mix, bought into Tom Thibodeau's system, and has uplifted his game now that he is not splitting shots with Luka Doncic, or should I say sharing shots with Luka, to where he is the main focal point of the offense. Yes, Julius Randle is still being consistent. Yes, other players are still contributing. Yes, Obi Toppin is still getting developed. But when you talk about what Jalen Brunson has done for the team, I mean, he's averaging 24 points per game, six and a half, re- six and a half uh, assists. We're talking about three rebounds a game, 40% from the three-point line, almost 50% from the field. Like, this is the player you needed to lead this team. Not Julius Randle taking the majority of the shots. Not Derrick Rose, who is well above and well beyond his prime to go and be taking minutes from younger guards, but somebody who embraces the culture of New York City, 
who loves everything about New York as of right now and is doing exceptionally well at, at, at that point. I mean, Stephen A. Smith is giving him his flowers. I know that I love Jalen from you know him being a maverick. I'll always be salty that he left and didn't give us a meeting, but for him to go into New York, embrace the doubt, hate, the culture, whatever the New York fans gave him for saying that he was a big waste of money, for them to for him to make them eat their words, it's making me happy. And if the Knicks can continue the pace that they're on and obviously manage, uh, muster up a couple more big wins, I would say that they can continue to climb in this Eastern Conference. Maybe not to the to top two, top three seeds, but I can see them as a consistent four or five seed. I mean, obviously at this point, the only difference in the playoffs between the four and the five is who gets home court in the first round. But if the Knicks can have a home field advantage, a home court advantage in a postseason series, I think that that does this organization wonders. So for the Knicks to turn it around from where they were last year to where they are this year by just simply adding Jalen Brunson and flipping a couple pieces, I think that this is a huge step up. And I know that the city personally, from fans and family that are ecstatic, this is just an incredible win for New York as a whole. Yeah, and it's just what comes with the territory of being a, a Knicks fan or just being in that realm is that the Knicks are kind of always known to be a subpar team. And the last couple of years, they have been relatively better than what their recent history has been. And when you look at this seven-game win streak that they've been on, Kev, they've beaten some good teams along the way. They've beaten teams like the Wizards. They've beaten teams like the Celtics. They've beaten teams like the Nets. Granted, the Nets have had this entire roster sh- shake up when uh, Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving got traded. But this is a pretty impressive win streak. And the one thing that I want to take away from this Knicks win streak is that you're getting different performances, like top-tier performances, from multiple players. It's not just Jalen Brunson going out there and scoring 35, 40 points a night. You're getting good contributions across the board. You you know, there could be games where you see Jalen Brunson get 25, 30 points, and then you could have a game where Julius Randle pops off for 35 to 40. Granted, it's a little bit more rare, but he is capable of that. And in this win streak, he had one game where I believe he dropped 46 points, which is quite impressive. He was four points away from a 50-point performance. And then, to me, I think one of the unsung heroes from the Knicks, not only in this win streak that they've been on, but to the season for a larger extent, is Emmanuel Quickly. Emmanuel Quickly is getting about 25 to 30 minutes a game, but he's getting good contributions to the team as a whole. And he could get you 15 to 20 points in that role that the Knicks and Tom Thibodeau have him in. When it comes to the Knicks, they're right on the edge of being a top-tier team in the Eastern Conference. And you could say with the way that they've been playing the last couple of weeks that they are trending in that direction. I think for me, the next couple games are going to be crucial for them. I believe they have to play the Celtics again, and the Celtics are not only one of the best teams in the Eastern Conference, they're one of the best teams in the NBA this year. And then I believe they played the Kings about a week or so from now. And the Kings have been one of the surprise teams that we've seen in the NBA this year with the Kings being a top three team in the Western Conference when nobody was really expecting that from Sacramento. But the fact of the matter is, is when I look at the Knicks from top to bottom, they have a good core of guys to roll with. And it seems as if this infusion of youth that Kevin was talking about is more prominent than some of the older players that they've had in the roster. I mean, granted... You know, they have some veterans on this team like Derrick Rose. You could even say that Julius Randle is a vet, even though that he's relatively younger than Derrick Rose. But 
it's guys like Jalen Brunson, Emmanuel Quickly. Those guys are stepping up in huge contributions. You could also throw Mitchell Robinson as well. These guys are going to have to perform consistently throughout the rest of the regular season if they're going to vie for a top four spot in the Eastern Conference. And it's right there for them. They're only a couple games back of the cast for that four spot. And if they're able to beat these top tier teams for the rest of the year consistently, we'll see where the, it could take them. I, I agree with Kev. I don't think that they're going to make a two or three seed in the Eastern Conference simply just because I think teams like the Celtics and the 76ers are a little bit better than them, even though that the Knicks have shown that they could be a really good team against the Celtics, and they've proven that they can beat a team like the Celtics this year. It'd be kind of interesting to see how, if it were to play out, the Knicks and the Celtics were to go face-to-face in a playoff series. That would actually be quite interesting as far as I see it. But the Knicks are turning in the right direction. Tom Thibodeau seems to be the right guy for the job at this current moment in time. And we'll see what happens from here on out. The, The Knicks are... Like I said, they're trending in the right direction. I imagine the city is probably thrilled about the success that they've had recently. Now they just have to finish the season strong, and hopefully that momentum carries them well into the playoffs. I'll just kind of leave it at that. I mean, despite what Nick fans have been giving me as a Mavericks fan my entire life, especially with the KP trade and all these different things that have happened over the last couple of years of just pretty much mocking me every chance that they can have. And I know that that's not all my friends, but, you know, New York's a city of trolls and everybody's got something to say. You know the city best, bro. I will always cheer for the hometown team. There's never going to be an instance, unless they're playing the Mavericks, I won't cheer for the Knicks, ever. And that's just because that is literally where I'm from. It's rooted in my bones. It's rooted in my system. I can't not cheer for them. You know what I'm saying? Like I say it every single season. New York is at its highest peak when its sporting teams are consistent, are winning, when the Yankees are winning, when the Mets are winning, when the Knicks are winning. I mean, nobody really gives a shit about the Nets, to be honest with you, because they used to be in Jersey for so long. So it's not really a New York team. Yes, Brooklyn has embraced them, but I I can't sit there and, and definitively say they give a shit about Brooklyn. But realistically, when the Knicks do good, New York is hype. The vibes are crazy. I mean, whenever I go home and there's a Knicks game or a Yankee game, I try to catch it wherever I can. And it's on every TV, just like... In any city, you know, you're in Boston, the Celtics, the Patriots are going to be on. In New York, the Knicks are on almost every single television if they're televised. So, like I said, I I want the Knicks to do good. I'm enjoying the ride that they're on. I'm enjoying it that much more that they're being led by a former Maverick when they shit on him all offseason. So, it gives me a little bit of juice to say, where where was that shit talking uh, in September, October? How's how's my boy doing? He's doing okay? Hold his laundry. You know what I'm saying? just... I got a lot of shit talk in my pocket for some of my boys. But again, I'm happy for the Knicks. And, uh, you know, overall, the NBA is in a good place right now with how competitive the postseason's getting. So I won't harp too much on the NBA anymore because yeah. I know Kyle and I got a pretty big rant to go on right now. And forewarning, it is justified and it is 100% warranted. So, Kyle, I know you're looking at your chops right now. This MLB pitch count is crap. It's 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 garbage. The 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 limit behind it, the timing. I'm going to read the official rule for those of you that are unaware. The new rule in the MLB is that there is a 30 second timer between batters and a time be, and a time limit between pitchers. After receiving the ball from the catcher and or umpire, pitchers are required to begin their motion within 15 seconds if the bases are empty. If the bases have runners on, they only have 20 seconds. Kyle, I'm I'm giving you the floor, man. Let it rip. I think this rule that they have for the whole pitching cycle 
from beginning to end is just nonsense. And the way that I see it, maybe from an MLB perspective, is maybe like this is their version of just a play clock, a play clock like you see in the NFL. That's a little bit different. There's a 40-second play clock in the NFL. This is 15 to 20 seconds max. And I'm going to go this route with the rule itself. They are ruining the integrity of the game. And this is not the first instance that Kevin and I have brought this up before. I think when they instituted the rule to put a runner on second base once you get into extra innings, I think that that was a bullshit rule too. This is just another rule that, to be quite honest with you, Kev, I think that they should scrap it before the season starts. Because when it comes to the timing of the whole pitching cycle, the the batter getting to the batter's box, this is not like a rapid-fire situation that the pitcher and the batter are supposed to get into. There's always this little time frame where a pitcher is going to read some pitches from the catcher, He'll either shake his head no or shake his head yes. And then you get into your windup and then you pitch the ball. But that that you have to run through this rotation so quickly because you don't want to be caught up against the clock. I think this is just ridiculous. And to me, it's really this analytical push that the MLB has been going after the last couple of years. I know that Kevin has gone on time and time again about analytics and how many pitches a pitcher should have even when he's doing really well in a game and taking him out and then going straight to the bullpen. This is another instance where it just seems as if the MLB is instituting rules for the modern time that we live in. And when it comes to baseball, as far as I see it, it still is the nation's pastime. And it should be kept in that way with the rules of that baseball has followed since its it, since its inception. And when it comes to the, the length of a game, if people are really going out of their way to institute rules within MLB to say we need to we need to wrap this up sooner rather than later, it, it really kind of goes to show that I think just people are impatient when it comes to watching baseball games, even though they should be, they they should not be in that regard. Baseball games, as far as I see it, if you're talking about a nine-inning game, they're going to be two and a half to three hours long. And if it goes to extras, it's even going to be longer. That just comes with the territory of a baseball game. If people are going out of their way to say that baseball sucks, it's because it's boring to watch, they can say whatever they want. But I played baseball for most of my childhood. And we would mostly play six, seven innings in a game. And it took a while to get through those games, but I never really minded it. It just kind of came to the territory of the game. It's not a physical game. Baseball is purely a mental game. And when it comes to these rule changes that they've been instituting over the last couple of years, and this one specifically with the pitch clock, it's kind of taking away the whole mind game that comes along with the game of baseball. Because, you know, it's always a battle really between the pitcher and and the batter. And with this rule change, it throws that, I won't say relationship, but that competitive spirit that takes place between the pitcher and the batter, and it distorts it. And it just, it just, it, it speeds up the tempo of the game when I don't really think it should. So 
when it comes to how this is going to play out for the rest of the year, I think it's always going to be a focus where you're always going to be looking at the clock instead of the actual pitch in the, the pitcher and the batter going at it. And I think that that's wrong. I may sound like an old head here, but I think it would serve baseball and the MLB well to just get rid of this rule. I don't think it's going to serve the sport well. I don't think it's going to serve the fans well. And I think at the end of the day, it just distorts the nature of how the game is supposed to be played. Because like I said, now you're always focused on the clock instead of what's taking place between the pitcher and the batter. And then the subsequent runners on base and the fielders that are either in the infield or the outfield. So we'll see what happens for the rest of the year when it comes to how this is going to be managed. But I think, I think it's ridiculous. And I think it only weakens the integrity of the game as far as I see it. I mean, I'm looking at some other things here. Obviously, there's I didn't even know that there's this new shift rule. I'm not even going to get into that. There's bigger bases. Let's just get right back on track with the pitch clock. I understand to an extent that the game needs to be sped up just a little bit. Sometimes the batter stepping out, adjusting his glove. Sometimes the pitcher is rubbing his hat. Sometimes the pitcher is stepping off to look at the base runner. Sometimes the batter stepping out again. Sometimes the pitcher needs to have a conversation with the catcher. Sometimes the pitching coach needs to come out. I'm not going to sit here and pretend like some instances when it comes to pitching and hitters, there isn't something that's dragged. There isn't something that is, oh my God, again, like you can't get the right... But I agree with Kyle. There is a mental note. There's a reason. If the pitcher and catcher aren't on the same page, I'm not saying that the catcher should have unlimited trips to the mound, and I'm not saying that there should be an unlimited conversation between coaches and players. But if you're going to rush the pitcher, you got to be able to also rush the batter, right? Like I understand it's a 15-second it's a clock for both, but instead of a clock... Why do we limit how many times a batter can step out of the box? Why don't we limit how many interactions? Oh, wait, there is a limit of how many interactions there could be between pitcher and catcher in a game. What, what more do you want? The MLB is catering to people that don't even give a shit about baseball. The MLB is catering to people that have no patience, like Kyle said. The MLB is catering to fans that aren't even actual fans because dedicated, real-life fans that pay all this money to be at an arena, to be at a stadium are here to watch a three- to four-hour game. If you're complaining, don't fucking go. I don't understand the concept here, what the problem is. Again, I understand that there needs to be tweaks, but for you to rush the game just for the sake of... Billy is like, Mom, I want to get out of here. I want to go watch my show. Or, or Sarah's like, I want to go to the bar. Like, I don't understand. Don't be at the game if you can't watch it. Go watch it at home. If you don't want to watch it there, be on your phone. Go get a phone call. Go grab a beer. I don't know what to tell you. But if you're going to pay money to be at a baseball stadium to watch a professional baseball team play the sport of baseball, then you need to understand that you're going to be there for a very long, lengthy period of time. That's what it is. This is Manfred once again screwing the sport up, ruining the game, and doing something to cater to the masses as opposed to the actual fans that want to see a good game. For those of you that don't understand, when you're rushing a pitcher, you're rushing his decision, you're rushing the pitch call, you're rushing his ability to effectively play the game. Because if you're rushing in between pitches, you may not be set, you may not have the right pitch that you want, you may have to make an uh, executive decision. You don't have time to sit there and go, yes, no, with the catcher 55 times anymore. But you can't just agree to the first pitch that the catcher's going to recommend. Again, 
there are so many tendencies and so many little nuances that I can go into detail about that are going to bore the masses here, but there's so much that goes into baseball that people don't understand, and you're only hearing 10% of it. It's taking too long. Baseball shouldn't be this dragged out. I have to be somewhere after this game. I want to go to bed. I want to beat the traffic. All these narratives that come with attending sporting events. Don't go. Baseball is the way that it has been for dozens, decades, hundreds of years at this point. And you're trying to change it because you don't want to be there or you want to be at home or somewhere else faster. Just don't go. It's that simple to me. When it comes to baseball, the way that I always played it, Kev, it was very simple. When you look at how things have transpired within the MLB the last couple of years, to me, this has all been driven by analytics within MLB itself. And, you know, you could point to Rob Manfred really being the spearhead leading the way He's in always to blame. revolutionizing the game in this manner. But, Kev, when it comes to the rules that baseball has followed over the last 100 years, what was wrong with it? What, what was wrong with the rules that they had in place before they started making all these rule changes? Because honestly, I thought that the way that the game was played up until about 10 years ago was perfectly fine. Five to 10 years ago was perfectly fine before then. But it's just been these little rule changes that they've been instituting. And now it's it's gotten to the point where I think it's out of control. And it's like you said, they're they're catering to people that just really don't have the intention span to even watch baseball. If that's the case, so be it. You live with it. You should, if you're going to cater to new audiences, it should be what's taking place on the field when the game is not going through this major transformation of putting in these new rules on a yearly basis. And that's the thing. Kev, this ain't, this ain't just about baseball either. I've noticed this about the NFL too. About There's always these meetings that take place before every season starts where they talk about, oh, we need to adjust this here. We need to institute this rule here. We need to institute this here. Sometimes just let it be. Let the game breathe on its own. If it gets to a point where it's unanimous that a rule change needs to be instituted, fine. It has to be apparent and obvious for that to happen, though. I I will say one of the rule changes that I do like is the review. That that to me I Love think that. is a, that's necessary. That's a good one, and I kind of just leave it at that when it comes to the positive rule changes. When it comes to the shift thing about not being able to shift when you're playing defense, I think that's crazy. Yeah, it's uh, on thirty three point six percent of plays. All plate appearances, the strategy was even more pronounced against left-handed batters, which was at 55% specifically, which frequently resulted in lefty hitters being thrown out on ground balls. So what? So what? Just that let it be. you have to develop a skill. And guess what? When you play baseball, you have to learn how to just... People think baseball... Kyle, correct me if I'm wrong. The, the average individual thinks hitting a baseball is all you have to do. Mm-hmm. You just have to make contact with it. That's not true. You have no, to not. place the ball in specific so, places. You're not just swinging and hoping I, it gets in. I will t- I will give you an example. This happened when I was a freshman in high school. I remember it was like the sixth or the seventh inning. I believe it was a tie game. And we had runners in scoring position. And when I got up to bat, I saw the shift that I was going up against. I'm a right-handed batter. So obviously, everybody in the infield and the outfield is shifting to 
the left because more likely than not, I'm going to hit the ball to the left side of the field because there's that tendency with right-handed batters. If they hit the ball, they're going to pull it to the left. So you know what I did? Pitcher throws the ball. I take about a half second later, not even, probably even a quarter second or maybe a tenth second later on the swing. And I swing up just a tad bit later. I hit the ball and it goes in between the gap between where the first baseman and the second baseman is. And mind you, the shift's on. So there's a bigger gap between the second baseman and the first baseman. And I place the ball right in the middle of that gap between the first base and the second baseman. The runner scores on the hit. And I think we ended up winning that game. When I look back to that instance, you know, people could look, oh, well, you won the game. And I'm like, no, that's not that's not the point. I mean, granted, that was one of the results that ensued from that, but that that's not the major takeaway. The takeaway was it was one of the best hits I've ever had. And it was simply just, it was just kind of like a bouncer. It was like more of like a ground ball type hit, but it was where it was placed. And the fact that I hit the ball ex- exactly where I wanted to hit it, that takes skill. And when you're taking away this shift option, that's a skill that guys have learned their entire baseball career to be able to hone in on, especially when the instance calls for it in a certain moment of the game. And look, it, it, that's just a smart defensive strategy. If you're going to yeah, put the shift on, you're catering to the players that can't do it. So you're catering to not bad. No, nobody's bad in the MLB because to make it to the professionals, bro, be honest, you have to be insane. Exactly. Because of all the levels of, 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 of tiers to get to the MLB of single, A, you have double A, triple A. There's, there's a bunch of different levels. People think getting to the NBA is hard, bro. I, personally, I think getting to the MLB is probably one I, of the hardest things to do. You got to hit a ball coming at you a hundred miles an hour. You literally have about a quarter a of a second to react. You have a quarter of a second to react to it. And you gotta, you gotta make a judgment call. This is gonna be a fastball, a curveball, a changeup, a slider. Like, you have to analyze those pitches in such microseconds. It's crazy that these guys can perform at such a high level. I mean, look at Aaron Judge last year with the amount of home runs that he had. I mean, I know that Aaron Judge is one of the best players in the MLB, but the fact that he was able to hit what sixty-two dingers last year and beat crazy. the AL record—it's crazy. Guys, don't take this out of context. Don't make it seem like, or I'm not trying to make it seem like I was like this amazing baseball player and I no, had like these all. MLB it's aspirations. A, it's just a direct example it, and correlation it, to what we're talking about. It's an example of if there's a shift on, you have to be able to execute based on where the shift is at. And I made a hit where I wanted to hit where the one weakness in their shift was, and I was able to do it. You know, and that's a skill. It's a skill to be able to. Choke up on the bat a little bit. Take about literally a quarter second off of your swing so you're swinging a little bit later instead of a little bit earlier. Because if you're swinging earlier and you hit the ball, you're going to pull it to the left. Those are little skills. It's the little nuances and details that come with that game. And I think the, the MLB with these rule changes, and they've been so consistent over the last couple of years, it just degrades the game as a whole. Agreed. And I know I sound old saying this. Let the game breathe. Agreed. Let it be. Make the review change, I'm cool with. I got no problem with that. Take take as much time as you want when it comes to reviewing plays. Let the game breathe. And apparently Rob Manfred and the MLB hierarchy don't really understand that. I think, like you said, they're catering to an audience that just doesn't really care about baseball in the first place. I don't want to talk about Rob. I just can't do it. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, 
quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Anymore. I'm over it. So this is going to be the perfect way to transition into our favorite sport. And that's going to be the NFL. Guys, we've been doing the three teams or three things individual teams need to improve for next season. We went through all the postseason teams. And now we are going to go through the worst teams in the league. So we are going to go in order, like I had stated at the introduction, uh, in order of draft spot or draft location. So first is going to obviously be the Chicago Bears. And then we are going to go into the Houston Texans. So Kyle, for the Chicago Bears, they have the number one overall pick. They have Justin Fields. They have Matt Eberflus at the head coach. But that's about it. So what are your thoughts on what the Chicago Bears need to do to improve for next year? Well, first things first, the Bears need a miracle. (laughs) They are just a subpar team, to say the least. And that's honestly putting it mildly. Uh, They're the worst team in the NFL. They had a 3-14 and record. And that's despite the fact that they have an up-and-coming quarterback in Justin Fields, who, from an athletic perspective, is probably the most exciting player at that quarterback spot that they've had in quite some time. But when it comes to the overall team, it's just weak from top to bottom. And I'm going to focus more on the defensive side of the ball here first. I know Kevin will probably allude to some things on the offensive side of the ball. But when it comes to their defense, their defense is atrocious. And you can look at it from all different aspects. You can look at it from a passing defense perspective. You can look at it from a pass rush perspective. There's multiple ways that you can look at it. I'm going to focus on two things that need to be addressed when it comes to their defense. First is their pass rush. Their pass rush is horrendous. They had 20 sacks as a team. Kev, there have been some players in the NFL over the last couple of years who have individually had 20 plus sacks. And the Bears had 20 sacks as a unit last year. It was dead last in the NFL. The only team that was a little bit ahead of them was the Falcons. The Falcons had 21. So you're talking about bottom of the barrel bat. And Kev, I'm going to be honest here. Let's go to their depth chart. And this is really the first time that I've looked at their depth chart from top to bottom. And Kev, when I when I look at their depth chart, their defensive lineman, I can't tell you anybody that I know off, off the top of my head. Travis Gibson, Mike Pinnell Jr., Justin Jones, and Dominique Robinson are your starters. Who? Who are these guys? And granted, some of these guys might be young. Some of these guys might be up and coming. I'll give them a little bit of room there. But for God's sakes, the Bears have nobodies on the defensive front four. So when it comes to the Bears this offseason, they have the number one pick. Maybe they use that number one pick to address something on this defense. And hopefully I would think that they would have to do something with their pass rush because their pass rush is just abysmal. I mean, granted, we've talked about teams like the Eagles. The Eagles had 70 sacks as a unit. Imagine being 50 sacks behind a team like the Eagles in the Bears. It's just it's just unfortunate that Bears fans have been subjected to this nonsense for the last couple of years, especially on the defensive side of the ball. And then another part where it's kind of focused on that same area of the defense 
is their rush defense. Their rush defense is in that same boat of being bottom of the barrel. And it's simply just because it could be the player personnel that could be the issue. It could be that the coaching staff's not putting them in the proper positions to be able to execute game in and game out. But the fact of the matter is, is that their rush defense needs to be improved tremendously. So when it comes to the Bears this offseason, maybe this is a year where they utilize their cap space to their advantage because the Bears have a lot of cap space to work with, that they do something to rebuild and reshape this defensive line because they are losing the battle in the trenches game in and game out. And the record shows, the statistics prove it. And you know when it comes to the Bears, they've been basically borderline irrelevant for the last couple of years. The last couple of years, they've just been an eyesore. And it starts on the defensive side of the ball. You know, it's cliche, but defense wins you championships. And right now, the Bears do not feel the defense that would even be remotely close to even be in contention for a playoff contention area. So the Bears have a lot of things to improve upon. I just wanted to focus on the defense and I'll let Kevin take it away from here because I know he has some things to say about the Bears as well. I mean, Kyle already made two big points. Obviously, we're talking about the the lineup front, right? The first front four. That is obviously, like he said, rush and pass, excuse me, rush defense and pass defense within the pass rush in and of itself. I'm going to stay on that same side, but flip it to the offensive side. And I'm going to say the offensive line. Justin Fields was sacked 55 times. That is tied for league most along with Russell Wilson. When you have a mobile quarterback like Justin Fields, when you have someone that's still developing, when you don't have a lot of playmakers on the outside, that is going to be the point where I say, well, then you got to keep him upright. You got to give him the time to make those definitive decisions. You got to make sure that he is going to have the available space in front to go and make those reads. If he's consistently pressured, what is he supposed to do? He's already young. He's inexperienced. He's run first because he was almost going to break the single season rushing record. If I believe, I don't know if he was benched for the last game. He was hurt in another game. So, I mean, like, I, I truthfully think if he played all 17 games, he would have beat Lamar's rushing record this year. But anyway, back to what I was saying. If his first instinct is already to run with the ball, it's definitely not helping when he has zero seconds to actually scan and read the field to make a definitive read as to where his first look is, where his second read is, where the check down is, if he's got three, four defensive people in his face at a time. So when you're talking about the development of a young quarterback, when you're talking about someone that showed you a lot of flashes of who he potentially could be for the remainder of his career, that starts with the line up front. From the moment that ball is snapped from the center's hands and it touches the quarterback, if he has less than three, four seconds to scan and throw, you're doing him a disservice. Injuries are going to mount up. He's already mobile, so you know he's going to take unnecessary hits. You have a defensive-minded head coach, so offensively, maybe their schemes aren't exactly fitting. And then you go into the, the fact of what I had mentioned just a few moments ago. They don't have any big receivers. Darnell Moody, not a definitive number one. They traded for Chase Claypool. He sucks. Like, who are you really throwing to on the outside? Cole Komet at the tight end spot? Like, he can't stay healthy either. David Montgomery can't stay healthy in the backfield. The Bears are riddled with a lot of issues that they need to address this offseason. But for me, the most important, the most glaring, and the most obvious got to protect your franchise and that's by making sure that the offensive line is stout i will say one of the positive aspects about the bears this offseason is that they have a lot of cap space to work with and kev i mean i imagine we're probably in the same boat on this one they got to utilize that cap space to their advantage over 100 mil 
You got to take advantage of it. Make and it there count. are some there are some glaring holes on this team. I mean, even if they were to make some adjustments to be a better team going into next year, they they got to show more than just three wins. I imagine if they utilize their capital to the best extent possible, mind you, that's a little bit iffy when you're talking about the Bears. The Bears have been inconsistent over the last couple of years. But if they can make some strides to maybe double their win count from three to six wins, granted, I know six wins doesn't sound like much, but it would be a step in the right direction. And Kev, I think we're also in the same mindset on this one here as well. We, You believe that they're going to trade that number one pick to, to move down in the draft and potentially look at some different options other Absolutely, than especially the after pick. the news with uh, with Jalen Carter coming out, he was the projected number one overall pick. I think that that incentivizes the Bears to say, let's let's trade back, let's give this spot to somebody who needs it. Not that the Bears don't, but the capital that they can obtain from this will prepare them for the future. Whether that's uh, another first round pick this year, which obviously they have to get in return, a first round pick for next year, they are going to get a haul, especially from a team. Unfortunately, I have to say, like the Colts, who need a quarterback, and this is a quarterback-driven draft with four big prospect names that can change a franchise. So they can play with this number one overall pick, and they could definitely say, you know what, let's step back. If we have to trade back again, they're going to get a big haul for that pick, man. I I think the Bears would be smart to trade back. And just one more thing about the Bears, and this is just a quick question for you. What do you think is a realistic best scenario case for the Bears next season? and how they're going to play it out. I mean, if Justin Fields stays healthy, they can address the big things, like we said, just improve the offensive line. Maybe not cut it all the way in half, but instead of 55 sacks, maybe cut it to 35. Give Justin Fields some more opportunities. You go from maybe 20 sacks to 35 sacks. Just just small little increases as a cohesive team. I don't think they're going to compete for the division, but I think that they can compete with the Packers and obviously the, uh, the Lions to at least compete for second if not third it really depends on the personnel that they get because to me if minnesota stays together i think minnesota is going to run away with that division 10 times over with what green bay's going over with aaron Rodgers hiding in the dark for four days and not knowing what the hell he's going to do and then obviously Devonte adams leaving um randall cobb's a free agent obviously the, alan lazard's a free agent that whole offense is just in shambles De- detroit's on the rise detroit is hot with dan campbell and jared goff and that offense getting better I think that the Bears are going to flirt with third or fourth. If they get lucky and they hit on some picks and hit on some free agents, maybe compete for second. But I would say bottom of the NFC North is still going to be where they sit for the next couple seasons. Yeah, I don't know if they'll be the worst team in the NFL next year. I I think if they were to end up in that same scenario again, oh man, you're going to talk about... Iberfus would be out the door. Yeah, general man- if they If they're, they're back-to-back number one, number two picks in, the, in his first two years, he's gone. Yeah, it, it would be an absolute tire fire if that was the situation for next year. But uh, nonetheless, the Bears got a lot to work with this offseason because you're at the bottom of the barrel. Honestly, you have nowhere to go but up at this point. Nice. So we'll just leave it at that. Uh, the next team that we'll go to is another subpar team. Uh, they will have the number two pick in the NFL draft that is the Houston Texans. Uh, just to give you guys a quick summary of the Houston Texans from this past season, uh, they finished as the last place team in the AFC South and to a larger extent, the AFC. They were the second worst team in the NFL the past year with a 3-13-1 record. I know Kev's probably a little bit salty about that one because that one tie that they had was against the Colts in week one of the season last year. So the Texans got a lot to work with this upcoming year to try to improve their chances going into next year. So Kevin, I'm just going to kick this one to you. What do you think 
the let me rephrase this. What are some things that the Texans need to do to improve this offseason, knowing that they were a three thirteen and one team last year? Well, I mean, it, number one, glaringly obvious, you got to fix the quarterback. You haven't had anything since Deshaun Watson had his potential MVP year when they went to the playoffs a few years ago. You had Davis Mills, who everybody said, everybody on our social media said, y'all don't know what you're talking about. Davis Mills is nice. He needs more time. He needs to develop. Blah, blah, blah. He sucked. Okay? He was horrible. The record speaks for itself. I don't want to hear it. And then you, later in the season, went to a two-quarterback system where Jeff Driscoll was taking snaps for a mobile quarterback. Offensively, the Houston Texans looked absolutely lost. The only bright side to it was former Gator Damian Pierce, who unfortunately ended up getting hurt towards the end of the season and got shut down. But, I mean, with the record that, the, with the record that they had, it's probably best for him to get healthy anyway and, you know, I guess prepare for the, the more disappointing next season as it is. But you, you, got, you got to go and draft a quarterback. Again, I said it in the last segment. You have four potential quarterback prospects that can come out here and change a franchise with them having the number one, the number two overall pick. It's got to be Bryce Young. It's got to be Will Levis, CJ Stroud, whoever it is you decide. I would have to say it's got to be Bryce because, again, Bryce is probably the best prospect out of all of them available. It's just his height that is in question. But draft a quarterback. Figure out who the leader of this franchise is going to be for the foreseeable future. You have D'Amico Ryans now, a former Houston Texan, a defensive-minded guy. He's going to get that defense right. This defense was not bad last year whatsoever. I would say that it was a little bit above average in terms of overall defense. This offense has got to change because you got to put points on the board. So I would definitely say draft a quarterback. And then second for me right now, you got to add some more playmakers. Brandon, uh, Brandon Cooks has been in the trade market for the last, I don't even know how many years. He ends up not wanting to play for them anymore. He wasn't available because of injuries. Then you also have the wide receiver that they drafted last year. I forget his name, who unfortunately had leukemia, so he didn't get to play. John OJ Mechie. Ha- huh? John Mechie. John Mechie. We know the talent that he provided when he was in college and how he was able to blow the top off of a defense. But again, with unfortunately him coming down with leukemia, that limited their options because he wasn't available. Then you, have, you go and you get O.J. Howard, and he ends up tearing his ACL. Again, like I said, Damian Pierce, he ends up getting hurt at the end of the year. There was a big issue with lack of depth at the receiver, tight end, and running back position. So overall, you are going to need to bolster this offense with depth, additive weapons, somebody that can complement Brandon Cooks on the outside if Brandon Cooks does decide to stay in Houston. And if not, you're going to need to go get a definitive number one wide receiver. I don't know Houston's cap situation right now. It's probably a tab I should have had open. I'm drawing a blank. But... At the end of the day, you need to figure out what you're going to do with the quarterback that you draft because you need to build you need to build a system around him and you need to find a way for that to be fluid, seamless, and consistent because more than likely the future of this franchise is going to be in the hands of a rookie next season. And if he's got no weapons to throw to, it's going to be another issue just like it was in Chicago. And Kev, just to make one more point about some of the things that the Texans need to address this offseason. Kevin, the amount of offensive turnovers that they had the past year, like you said, Davis Mills, could really, depending on who you asked, was supposedly going to be this next big guy that was going to step up for that quarterback spot in Houston, and it just ended in disaster. And when you look at the Houston Texans from an offensive perspective, Kev, they turned the ball over almost more than any other team in the NFL. And it's kind of crazy knowing that the Texans actually had a really good defense when it comes to turning the ball over. Because let's look at it from this perspective. You know, obviously, I just outlined how many 
turnovers that the Texans have had the, the past year. You compare it to what the defense did. The defense was top five in taking the ball away from opposing offenses. And it's crazy that a team like the Texans, who had a 3-13-1 record, would have a stat like that, where essentially they are in the same ballpark when it comes to defensive effort and turning the ball over with teams like the Patriots and the San Francisco 49ers. It's kind of crazy when you put the Texans in that same discussion because when, when you would first think about the Texans, everybody would just assume, oh, well, they're just god-awful. And granted, their record doesn't indicate that. But I can't say that about the defense. The defense, even though they're losing games, the defense is out there getting turnovers. And in large part, the reason why that the Texans had a negative one turnover differential from last season was simply just because the defense was able to turn the ball over so many times to get the ball back to the offense. It kept them relatively competitive in games where it could have been a lot worse. And, you know, this is where things are going to get very dicey when it comes to the offense, because if the offense is turning the ball over that consistently, where they're turning the ball over 25 to 30 times a season, you're just not going to be competitive in any way, shape, or form. And you could look back to some of these games that they've had where a turnover can dictate the outcome of a game. And granted, when it comes to Houston, their offense is up and down to say the least. You never really know what you're going to get. And when I look at it, the quarterback spot is absolutely pivotal to me. And the past year, the quarterback spot, Davis Mills, turned the ball over way too frequently, and it cost Houston to a larger extent. So, you know, there are definitely going to be some significant changes that come with that Houston Texans offense this upcoming season. But to me, they just have to limit their turnovers. And this is going to have to be something that the coaches are going to have to hone in on this offseason, especially when they get into training camp and OTAs, where, look, if a play is just not there to be made, you got to throw it out of bounds or try to run out of the pocket and try to get out of bounds. Trying to throw air passes into double coverage or throwing these 50-50 balls with the possibility of these passes being intercepted or turnover potentially happening. They can't afford that, especially with Houston. The, the margin of error when it comes to the Texans is so slim that even a slight mistake could cost them a game, especially with just the lack of production that the offense has been putting out there over the last couple of years. So to me, just to kind of round this out, I think if the Houston Texans are in any way, shape, or form viable next year, it would be because partly what Kevin had already said, and then one final point from me would be just limiting their turnovers. If they can do that, if they can cut their turnovers by at least a third and maybe up to a half, that can definitely make them more competitive, not only in the AFC South, but maybe to the AFC with a larger extent. Even though that I don't think the Texans are going anywhere significant next year, they can be better than 313-1 if they do some of those things that Kevin and I just alluded to. If your defense is getting that many turnovers, but your offense is giving it right back, it just it goes to show which outweighs which in terms of productivity. The defense may be allowing a lot of points, but when you're giving the ball right back after they just get a turnover, I talk about this every year. Your defense is constantly on the field. They get tired. They get gassed. They get winded. Coverages are blown, and so many other things lead to that. So again, for the Texans to be successful, fluid offense, can remain consistent on the defensive side, and again, limit those turnovers. Mm -hmm. I think if they do those things, they could at least go out there and maybe get six, seven wins next year. I still think they have a long way to go before they're somewhat competitive 
in that division in the AFC South, but kind of similar to what we said with the Bears. I think they really have nowhere to go but up at this point. So, you know, this is kind of the this is kind of the tricky part for us. We talked about all the teams that made it to the playoffs. And, you know, granted, there are issues that those playoff teams have. But in the grand scheme of things, it could be a lot worse for those teams. And then, oh, yeah. you know, you juxtapose it with teams that are literally at the bottom of the barrel. Teams like the Bears and the Texans. You're talking about essentially a complete reboot. Maybe not with the Texans. The Texans just need some offensive adjustments. I think defensively, if they could keep turning the ball over consistently like they did last year, I think it will serve them well. But I think just the general consensus out there is pretty much everybody believes that the Texans and the Bears aren't really going anywhere significant for the foreseeable future as far as I see it. And I think that the general consensus is right. Yeah, there's not really much you can do. There's a lot of issues outside of the ones that we listed. There's plenty of things that both organizations need to figure out. <clears throat> and of course, at the end of the day, until they start to build some form of consistency within each, um, they're both going to be maybe not lottery picks within the first like five, six picks, but they will definitely be bottom of the barrel under the 15 mark. So we'll see what happens as the season progresses. And again, those are going to be our two teams for the NFL. And now we're going to transition into Kyle's domain. This is all Kyle. This is his thing. And that's going to be UFC. So Kyle, to kick this one your way, John Jones is looking to continue that unbeaten streak to an extent because obviously the loss that he has is a technicality. It, it's a, it was a DQ. It was a DQ. Exactly. But and everybody, you know everybody that looks back on that fight knows it's bullshit. So with, with, correct me if I'm wrong, he's scheduled to fight when? Scheduled to fight on Saturday. He's going up against Cyril Gaon in the heavyweight division. And I All believe right, the well, fight is in Vegas. This is his first fight in three years. This is also his first heavyweight fight. So give me your thoughts. What's going to happen this weekend? Oh, this is going to be an amazing fight. And just to kind of give you guys uh, an insight into just the lead up to this fight, just some of the, the pre-fight activities that I've seen in regards to John Jones. It just seems like there's a huge atmosphere of excitement with John Jones coming back into the fold. Because like Kev said, this is the first time that John Jones has fought in the UFC since 2020. And just to kind of put things in perspective, the John Jones and Dominic Reyes fight was essentially one of the last fights before the world went through COVID and everything just went to hell in a handbasket. So it's been that long since John Jones has fought in the UFC. And, you know, with this fight in particular, it's coming in a different division. John Jones is widely regarded as one of the greatest UFC fighters that we've ever seen in UFC history. And you can make a very credible case that he is the greatest UFC fighter ever. And it's simply just because of the dominance that he displayed in that light heavyweight division since attaining the title at 23 years old, I still believe that he is the youngest UFC champion that's ever existed within the history of the UFC. And just his dominance in that division is why people regard him as one of the best UFC fighters and MMA fighters to ever exist. But this is going to be a new challenge for him. He goes up to the heavyweight division and you can tell that he's definitely put in the time to be able to get physically ready for this fight against Cyril Gaon. When you compare him to what he looks like in the lightweight, in the light heavyweight division compared to what he is in the heavyweight division now, you can definitely tell that he's bigger. He has more of a gut instead of kind of like a six pack when he was back in the light heavyweight division. And you're going to need that mass going up against someone like Cyril Gaon. Now, an interesting note that I was just looking over before we started recording was 
Ciro Gon apparently has some sort of injury to his right hand. He was in one of his uh, pre-fight uh, press conferences, and you could tell that there was definitely some swelling in his knuckles in his right hand. So that'll definitely be something that we'll have to monitor when both of these guys go at it on Saturday night. But the fact that John Jones is back in the UFC, he's going up to the heavyweight division in what could be another opportunity to not only cement himself as one of the greatest UFC fighters of all time. To me, if he were to go up to the heavyweight division, beat Cyril Gaon and win the heavyweight title and win the belt, I think at this point, there would be no discussion to be had about who is the greatest UFC fighter or MMA fighter ever. It would be John Jones. And it would simply just because the dominance that he displayed in the light heavyweight division, and now he moves up to a new division, hasn't fought in three years, and he could potentially beat Cyril Gaon in a fight where Cyril Gaon's been more active than John Jones. If John were able to do that, there's no more discussion. John Jones would simply be the greatest. And it really is kind of interesting, you know, when it comes to John Jones. John Jones is a part of this really athletic family. And I think a lot of people know Chandler Jones and Arthur Jones. Both of those brothers, and part of the Jones family, uh, they both played in the NFL. Chandler's still playing. I don't know what Arthur's up to right now, but I know in the NFL realm, I know people know Chandler Jones very well. But the fact of the matter is John Jones may be the best athlete amongst them simply just because of the dominance that he's displayed in his respective sport since coming into it. And I'm really, really excited to see what John can do this upcoming Saturday. For me, if I had to pick who's going to win between John Jones and Cyril Gaon, I may be going with a little bit of my heart here just because I'm excited to see John Jones back into the fold. I'm going to give John Jones a slight advantage over Cyril Gaon. I just don't know what to expect with Cyril Gaon and that what appears to be a hand issue in his right hand. And that could definitely impact his striking ability uh, when he goes up against John Jones. So it's just very interesting to see John Jones in a new division, but it looks like he's physically ready to go. He looks like he has a mentality that needs to be had going into a fight like this. And we'll see how things play out on Saturday night. But if you guys get the chance or the opportunity to watch this fight between John Jones and Cyril Gaon, I think it's going to be a good one. And I don't think it's an opportunity you guys should pass up. So I'll just leave it at that. Sounds like an exciting fight. Sounds like it's something that I'm probably going to end up missing because I always end up missing. I know there's a I, so the thing with UFC. It has nothing to do It has nothing to do with that. Trust me, I'm I'm usually up to two three in the morning anyway on a regular day basis, not including a weekend. I'm usually up super late. I always forget that there's a card, and then I realize that I don't want to pay for it, so I got to go to a bar, and it's like I don't want to be at a bar that late because usually by that time people are tanked. People are yelling. I'm trying to eat, trying to drink a beer. You know what I'm saying? Like for me, it's like not the vibe anymore. <clears throat> and I don't want to go see that by myself because I know the missus don't want to see that. And you don't live here. So most of my boys that don't live here don't want to go see UFC. So it's like, damn, what, whatever I am interested in, if there was a, like a card, like this would be a fight I want to see. I ain't going to go it, see that it, at a bar across the street by myself. I, I'll tell you what, when it comes to the UFC this month in particular, since March, what, we're on the second day of March. Yeah. Third day by the time that you guys hear this. I mean, this March stretch that we have in the UFC is extremely strong. We got the John Jones, Cyril Gaon fight that's taking place on Saturday. And then we have the trilogy fight of Leon Edwards and Kamaru Usman that's going to be taking place in London, I believe, in the third week of March. That's going to be a huge fight. 
You gonna come and down to Fort Myers so we can watch it? Because potentially, potentially, it's gonna be a huge fight, especially with knowing how Leon Edwards knocked out Kamaru Usman, who was a champion in that welterweight division, and the manner that he did it in the fifth round, where it looked like Kamaru Usman was running away with that fight. People were pissed off that Kamaru lost that fight because there was probably a lot of money that was lost on that fight. If you bet for Leon, good for you. But the fact that these two guys get to run it again. Uh, later this month it's going to be a sight to behold as far as i see it so no when it comes to this fight in particular this is going to be very exciting and i know for me it'll be very very exciting well that uh as excited as kyle seems that's gonna wrap it up you guys are getting this is kind of tepid for me like you know when it's funny like if you had a camera on me when i was just watching the fights and you're just watching two guys just slug it out Bro, if there's a knockout in this fight, bro, I might run out of my house. I might run out of my apartment. Because it's, it's, usually, it's usually the type of reaction that I end up getting. Because some of these fights, they could be really, really good. And especially if there's a knockout. If John Jones were to knock out Cyril Gone, bro, I, I God only knows what I would do when it comes to the reaction. It would be crazy. I believe it, to be honest. It, it, it sounds exciting. The only time I ever ran out of a house because of a sporting event. But never mind. I've done that quite a bit of times. Anyway. Um, me too. Me too. I, that is going to wrap it up for today's episode. Um, that is everything on the agenda. We kind of covered the things that we wanted to talk about. And then, of course, like at the end of the day, we're just appreciative and grateful of you guys. Uh, wherever you're supporting us, audio, social media platforms, it makes no big. It makes no difference. We're just thankful that we're able to do this on a weekly basis. And, um, you know, without you guys, we wouldn't be here. So, again, thank you so much for all the support. Kyle, what do you got for us, man? Honestly, I don't really have anything else to add. Kevin pretty much just hit it on the head. Just once again, thank you guys for appreciating, or not appreciating, supporting the podcast as you guys have had, depending on what platform it is. We definitely appreciate the support. And uh, just stay tuned to what we have uh, for you guys for the next couple of weeks. Uh, we're going to be busy with baseball coming up pretty soon. Uh, the NBA getting close to the playoffs. Obviously, we got some UFC fights uh, to attend to over the next couple of weeks. So we'll definitely have plenty of content for you guys. Um, whether it's long form, intermediate form, short form, we'll have it for you all. So just uh, if you keep supporting the podcast, we definitely appreciate that. All right. Well, that wraps it up. Ladies and gentlemen, have a great night and uh, have a great weekend. Take it easy, guys. Hey, guys. It's Miriam Love here. And I want to share something very special with you. Check out my new release, All In, the Spanish remixes, out now on Electric House Records. And always remember, be love, share love, all love. Available now wherever you listen to music. Miles, are you ready to record our promo for Season 2 of the Wanna Bet Podcast? David, have you ever seen a grown man naked? Miles, we're not here to quote lines from Airplane. We're here to tell people that Season 2 starts August 18th. But I like Airplane. I know you do, but Wanna Bet is a sports betting podcast. Each week we bet $1,000 on the NFL teams and games that we love. Well, that sounds like fun. It is fun. And last year you picked over 60% of your games correctly. How'd you do? We're not talking about that. We are telling people that they can find us every Friday. No more movie quotes. Roger, Roger. Electric acid.